you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 with me this morning. 1 Timothy 3, as we continue in this study of the fact that we are the church and how God's people live life, and I just want to say, yay, I'm done with deacons and elders, all right? Praise Jesus, all right? Now, we'll probably never be done of it, probably in the coming year or so, we'll probably do some more teaching and things of that nature, but Today I want to look at the three verses, 14, 15, and 16 of 1 Timothy 3. And really we're going to look at three truths in those three verses. One is God's church. Secondly is God's truth. And then thirdly is God's gospel. And I get to preach this to you today. And then uh, Brother Steve Da is preaching from Nehemiah next week as I get ready to gear up for the Christmas season. And yes, believe it or not, we're getting into it. And so starting two weeks from now, I'm going to start a series of sermons as we're going to look at the motley men of Christmas. All right, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, our first week, in two weeks, I'm going to be looking at the hope of, Christi- of Christmas, how God does the impossible and includes mankind as we look at the life of Joseph. And then after that, we're going to look at the terror of Christmas. When we think of only ourselves and we end up destroying ourselves and those around us as we look at King Herod. And then we're going to look at the power of Christmas and how God reaches out to anyone and everyone when we look into the lives of the wise men and the shepherds. And then the week of Christmas, we're going to look at the person of Christmas when we celebrate that Jesus is God in the flesh and is our hope and our salvation. So those will be the four sermons we'll be looking at in the Christmas season. But to set up today, I wish I had a prop. I can't believe that Jillian is not here because I'm about to give big props. If you know who Jillian is, sometimes she plays the bass. She has these big cheese things that hang off her ears because she is a rabid Green Bay Packers fan and she loves NFL football. Well, one of the most famous coaches of all time is a guy by the name of Vince Lombardi. And I love football. I love football, and I have to give kudos because Vince Lombardi is probably considered one, if not the greatest football coach in the football mind in the history of football, and he coached the Green Bay Packers to meant multiple championships. But he was, in early on in his career with Green Bay, he was very frustrated after a notorious loss, and he is made famous because he gathered his team together, and he realized we got to get back to the basics, to the fundamentals of football, tackling and blocking and executing plays better than anyone. And his famous speech is he walks into all these professional football players and he takes a football and he announces to his locker room, men, this is a football. And his speech then goes on from there as he drilled down about the fundamentals of playing the game. John MacArthur speaking about this particular thing, he said, like Coach Lombardi, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy knew well the importance of going back to the fundamentals. He penned this letter, 1 Timothy, because the church at Ephesus was starting to drift away from the basic truths of the Christian faith. And like the Ephesians here in 2015, we need regularly to be reminded about the foundational truths of the gospel. So today I'm actually even 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I've read these two verses almost every single week. We've been looking at 1 Timothy. Now we're going to unpack them. Okay, so look at what Paul Paul says. 1 Timothy 3, 3, beginning in verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. And if you write in your Bible, circle the word you. I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you. And again, circle that. So that if I delay you, again, circle that, 
may know how one, maybe underline that one to give you a marker that that's something different here has happened, ought to behave in the household of God. This household of God is the church of the living God. And this household of God that's the church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What is this mystery of godliness? He, being Christ, was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. He was believed in the world and he was taken up to glory. In fact, even for a guy like me, you could even rap this. Like you could do some Christian hip-hop with this if you really wanted to. I mean, it's just one of those things that just rolls off the lips, all right? But this is what he says. And I want you to realize again that these verses mark a turning point in 1 Timothy. I've said this to you guys week after week. We've now come to the end, and you will find this in all of the writings of Paul. Every one of his letters has a part one and a part two, a first half and a second half. If you think about 1 Timothy chapters 1, 2, and 3, he gave all kinds of positive instructions about, A, guarding the gospel. In chapter 2, about prayer and the role and structure of men and women and elders and deacons in the church. Now you read these last three verses in Timothy 3 and you go into 4, 5, and 6. And believe it or not, 4, 5, and 6 are filled with negative warnings. It's a series of warnings that Paul's going to give. But you'll notice verse 15 gives the heart of the church's mission. Verse 16 gives the heart of its message. And so I want you to make sure you see these things. Now when I read the passage, remember I said circle your U's and your one because I want you to see what Paul's doing. He is speaking specifically to Timothy. He's writing this letter to Timothy. But he expects Timothy to do something with this letter. He expects him to put it to practice, not only in his life, but in the life of the entire church at Ephesus. So notice what he does. Timothy, I write this to you so that you may know how one, and that one is plural, all of the church. So that means everybody here. So we can't look at this and go, well, that's great. Tim needed, needed to be admonished, and that's wonderful. No, no, that means we do as well. Okay, so I want you to personalize this. Now, I said this all along. Paul is writing to a person, but he's telling that person to tell a group, and here's what he's saying. This is who you are, and this is what we hold. I want you to think through that. So number one, all right, notice this morning, right out of the gates, we are a family with God as Father. We are as a family with God as Father. Now, I don't know about you, but I was talking. I met with a new pastor in this city on Monday. We had coffee down at Starbucks. And he, he told me to tell, he wanted me to tell him about me and my love of church and what did I think of church. And one of the things I kept coming to was, I said, man, for me, family is everything in the church. And I said, I don't know if that's why I kind of like mob movies. I don't know. It's because you're in the family, right? And you don't turn your back on the family. Right? Like, you know, you just you, you stay true to the family. And there's loyalty and stuff. And I love that. And listen, coming back to Newfoundland, you all know what I'm talking about, especially if you're born and bred here, all right? In Newfoundland, family is important. In Newfoundland, family is almost everything. In Newfoundland, you're known by your family. Even you protect your family. You spend time with your family. Now, I'm not saying that your family's not crazy. <laughs> all right? Every family has a crazy uncle. Every family has that aunt that when she kisses you, it's like you've been licked by a, a St. Bernard. 
all right? Every family has that argumentative kid in it, that spoiled brat, that sister that's always in. Like, that's what makes family family, isn't it? That's why you've got stories to share, and you've all got the, and that's why your kids, when you say, we're going to crazy uncle so-and-so, oh, jumpers, but I'll get candy. Or, you know, you tell, I remember when we would take our kids to, see, I've got some family here, so I've got to be careful what I say now and who I say it about. But there are some people, our kids would go, oh, dad, she's going to kiss us, right? And, and, you know, just leave the wetness behind. But we're family, we're family. Church is supposed to be a family. It's not because we're stained glass saints and we all do everything right and we're all just a bunch of CP3Os and we all just do. No, no, no. Family is family. The church is a family. Listen, we display to each other and we show the world what it means to be the family of God. Paul says you are the household of God. It's basic to understand that the church belongs to God. The church is not a human mindset. It's not a human institution. It's, it's God's church. It's his family. And the idea that we're the household of God is not a building. It means a family. We are members of God's family. We have a responsibility to act according to heaven's mandate. Guess what? You're back to John 13, 35. How you love each other proves you're part of the family. And John 17, 20. How we're unified together as family, we don't give up on each other as family, proves that Jesus is God. And can I tell you, in the craziness of this world, if there was ever a time that St. John's needs an example of the proof that Jesus is God, it's now. It's now. This is what we need to do. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Don't you love that? Paul says, if you you know Christ, you're not strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, Mary and Eldon, I've only known Mary and Eldon for what, like three months? Before that, I never knew them. If I'd have signed Eldon in the mall, I just would have thought, there's an old fella, right? Like, that's all I would have thought. But that we go out and we meet each other and we go out to Swiss Chalet and we have dinner together and we find out that they're Christians and they tell us their st- testimony and we tell them our t- And now it's like I've known him my whole life because that's my brother. He's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. We're family. We're no longer strangers. When I've traveled to Russia and Jamaica and Israel and all these different places and I meet people that I've never met and we find out we're believers, it's like we're instantly bound together. I have met all kinds of people. I used to work in retail. I met people for a living. I have never felt close to people like when I meet Christians because we're family. Paul talks about it in Galatians 6.10. He talks about it in Hebrews 3.6. He talks about it, Peter does, in 1 Peter 4.17. So the church is a family. Well, that means God's the Father. That means all of us as children are brothers and sisters. And we've got elders and deacons as leaders to help the family carry out the Father's purposes. So in other words, you know what elders are? We're basically the babysitters that God left in charge. That's basically what we are. So the church is a family. But think through this. In their commentary, Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell put it this way. It says, if we're a part of the household of God... It means we're in a retur- an eternal relationship. That means we will always be brothers and sisters. So you know what? You can't hate me forever. You can't. Huh. <laughs> I can't hate you forever. I can't avoid you forever. We are eternally brothers and sisters. If you're not getting along with your brothers and sisters, 
the eternal aspect may not seem so inviting. But the happy fact is in heaven we will be redeemed and perfected with whom we dwell with. Have you heard this poem before? To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Sometimes doing this Christian life is like doing the porcupine dance, isn't it? I'll never forget that. Somebody said, how do porcupines mate? Very carefully. (laughs) See, the church, by its nature, belongs to the living God. In fact, Paul told the Ephesian elders, remember he gathers them together? Remember I took you guys to Acts chapter 20? And he says to them in Acts 20, 28, that Jesus purchased the church. He purchased it with his own blood. We've been bought with a price. He told them in Ephesians that God's own possession, that he was the church, was God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We, us, actually declare and believe, right, that God dwells both in us and among us. Now understand how radical that statement is. Understand it. Especially Timothy, personally, and to the Ephesians, corporately. Paul is claiming that God, God is knowably present, and when we are gathered together, when we pray, when we sing, when we worship, when we read God's Word together, God's power is there to respond and be displayed. And so we are the church as the household of God, but we're also the church of the living God. The church of the living God, it says in our passage. Now, understand, have you ever wondered why it says we're the church of the living God? If you actually study your Bible in the Old Testament, that's how God is referred to all the time. He is the living God. Because in the Old Testament, you needed to know that God was living and all the idols were, were dead. All right, if you look at in Kings, when Elijah, in King, 1 Kings 18, he takes on the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. And I've been there, and he takes them, and he gets what I call a bit um, spiritually sarcastic. All right? Because he's got all those prophets up there and they're cutting themselves and they're wailing all day trying to wake up these gods. And Elijah comes along and he's like, yeah, maybe you got the wrong number. Like, try him on a different cell phone. You know, maybe he's, maybe he's taking a nap. Scream a little louder. Maybe he's gone on vacation. Maybe he's in the washroom. I mean, he really, he mocks them. And then he calls fire down from the living God. In Genesis, the living God communed with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God says when he tells Moses how to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, that he would come and he would dwell with his people. He told Solomon in 1 Kings 6.13 that when the temple was dedicated and they had the holiest of holies, the spirit, the Shekinah glory of God would come and his presence and his spirit would dwell there. David, but we remember in the Old Testament, his presence could come and go. And that's why David prays what he does in Psalm 51. He says, take not your spirit from me. And so again, we say that God dwells here. This is the church of the living God. Amen? Bruce and John are sure, but the rest of you, I think, are still figuring it out. (laughs) See, John MacArthur writes it like this. Crucial to behaving properly is the knowledge that the assembly of saints is the living God's church in the world of dead idols and that it is mandated and empowered for divine mission and a divine message. Let me just give you a glimpse of your Bible. This is a family of God. We are the church of the living God. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you realize God is here? This is the church of the living God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Paul, the, the writer says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, notice it doesn't say wishfully say. It doesn't say hopefully say. He says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men can do to me. This should make sense now of Psalm 23 that we recite so much by memory and we never stop to think about what we're saying. When David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You are with me. Folks, can I tell you, don't wait for a funeral or for a terminal illness to figure out how awesome that verse is. Discover it now. Discover it now. The prophet Isaiah said, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. David said in Psalm 17, verse 2, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, notice this, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's a good reason to come to church. As God's house, as God's family, as, as the place of the living God, we, 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 God's house protects God's gospel. And it's why and what the Ephesian church was failing at. All right, if you want to turn there, go to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, I want you to listen to the last words ever spoken to the church at Ephesus. This church that had John as one of its pastors, Paul as its church planter, Apollos was there. These were incredible men of the faith. This church affected all of Asia. Many, many churches were planted because of this church. But yet, when it comes to the end of what we know about it, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, this is what God himself says to the church of Ephesus. He says, but I have this against you. Now, this is after he said, you guys are awesome. You stand for stuff. You, you, you stand for what's right, and you take a stand against this, and you take a stand against this. But he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, I want you to get this. It doesn't say they lost it. They left it. They didn't lose their first love. They abandoned it. They let it go. In other words, the stand became more important than the Savior. They were more in love with what they were against than the fact that they had a Savior to celebrate. And notice what he says. He said, here's his remedy. It's three hours. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. What he means is go back to the gospel. You used to be a household of faith. You were the family of God. You were the, the dwelling place of God, the living God. Now you're all about what you're angry at. Remember from where you remember what you were saved from and to. And then you notice, repent. See, that's a gospel word. And I want you to notice in the Bible, you never stop repenting. It's laborious, but it's worth it. You are always repenting. And do the works that you did at first. So it's remember, repent, and return. Go back to the beginning. Now, I want you to notice of the seven churches of Asia, of all the stuff you can find in those other churches, this is the most wicked warning of everything else. Even the church at Laodicea that we love to pick on because they were lukewarm and Jesus says he's going to spew them out, he doesn't say this. He says, if you won't do this, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you, you know what he's saying? If you don't get about Jesus, I'm leaving. That's what he's saying. You're supposed to be a family, the church of the living God. And the last words to the church at Ephesus, if you guys don't get over your pride and your arrogance, I'm leaving. Because even the church at Laodicea, by the way, and this is not evangelistic verse, when it says in, in 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's, that's Jesus talking to his church, saying, um, <clears throat> I would like to come in. I would like to be the centerpiece of my church. Okay? I want you to realize that's not an evangelism verse. That's a call to an apostate church to come back to Jesus. Okay? That's what it is. And so if you do a real study of the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, you'll be amazed. Remember I told you that half and half thing? For the first three verses of Ephesians, Paul explains prayer, he explains the Holy Spirit, and he declares the gospel. Then in the second half, he explains what the gospel does in our lives. Over and over again, in other words, he's saying this, you got to get the gospel and understand the gospel and apply the gospel only before you're ever going to try and act out the gospel. And it's amazing. Just listen to this for stats. In Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, there's only one command, one imperative. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's 40. In Ephesians 1 to 3, there's one command. In 4, 5, and 6, there's 40. In fact, Ephesians 4 to 6 has more information about relationships than any other New Testament epistle. You will learn about church and marriage and family and friends and work and how we live and how we talk and how we act, how we think and how we forgive and how we love and how we serve. Even fight Satan is there in chapter 6. Unity around the essentials of the faith in chapter 4. How to treat each other with grace. It's all there in chapter 5. And so again, Kent Hughes puts it like this. Here's how this works. Listening to the word of God by yourself is a good thing. Singing to God alone is also a good thing. But singing to God together and hearing God's word preached together is better. That's why the church is a family. The church is the living God. The church is what comes together. Our hearing and our singing intensify when we are with our brothers and sisters in whom God dwells. Funny, Martin Luther, that old converted priest, almost 500 years ago said this, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Now, I'm not saying I have had some precious alone times with God. I want you guys to know that. I have had some wonderful times. Debbie gets a kick out of me because I'm a crier. All right? I really am. All right? And often I get up in the morning and I'll come down. And I'm, I'm serious. I know this is, you know, confession is good for your Maybe your great character, but not your reputation. So sometimes I get downstairs and I'm watching the news or this or that, and something pops up on my Facebook, most emotional uh, audition ever for Brit Britain's Got Talent. And I click on it, and it's some poor fellow that looks ugly and he doesn't look like he can sing anything. And then he opens his mouth and just beauty comes out, right? And everybody's, and I'm bawling and snotting like you would, oh, this is wonderful. And Debbie comes out and she goes, you're not watching YouTube videos again, right? And that's the story of my life. I cry. I've had wonderful times when I've been in the car listening to music or listening to sermons, reading God's Word, and I've just been over. But let me tell you something. 
I've had the glories of being at churches and conferences with 20 people. I was at a Lutheran church in Jerusalem. My friend and I, Herb, that was here, we were touring through this because under the ground there, there was this first century pavement where you literally could see games that had been scribbled on the ground like what they said when the Romans played games at the foot of Jesus' cross. And so we went down there. But while we were down there, we could hear this singing. And so we went to go find it, and we, we found this group of teenagers from Texas that were there on a little missions trip, and one dude with a guitar and about 20 of them, and we joined them, and we started singing, Here I Am to Worship, and in this beautiful old Lutheran church with the concrete, and the music just carried, and uh, next thing I know, I mean, tears are just streaming. Down. It was incredible. I got to go to Louisville, Kentucky to the, what's called the, the, the T4G concert, Together for the Gospel, and 10,000 people there, nothing but a piano, and we're singing nothing but the blood of Jesus, and I just was overwhelmed. I'm telling you, there's nothing like coming together with God's people. This is why God's Word is adamant that believers meet together. That's why I'm always spewing out Hebrews 10, 25, that we're not to forsake each other and forsaking the assembling of ourselves. Listen, TV church won't do. Cyber church won't do. People indwelt by the living God need the real thing. We need to regularly assemble because we're a family. We're the church of the living God. But Paul goes even further. Number two, we are possessors of the truth and we have been possessed by the truth. All right? He says, the pillar and buttress or foundation. So in other words, Paul says that the church is more than just a family. It's more than just a place where the real evidence and presence and power of God is. The church is the pillar and foundation in that it upholds the truth and defends it. Now, Steve, we got that picture there? We don't have that picture? All right, buddy, no worries. I wish I could show you that because Timothy, the moment that Paul said this, the pillar and buttress of truth. The moment Timothy read this to the Corinthians or to the Ephesians, they would have, all of them would have known what he was talking about. You see, there was a temple in Ephesus called the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This temple had 128 pillars that you would need multiple men to put your arms around and they were more than 18 meters tall. And this was built in the first century. And so everyone, so when Paul says to Timothy, listen, the church is the pillar and the foundation, he would have instantly known what Paul was talking about. The Ephesian church would have instantly, this is what God expects of his family. This is what God expects to us. He's placed his word amongst us to be believed in and upheld and read and defended and adored. Now, again, I'll go back to Israel. I've had four trips there. On my third trip, I got to go to the Western Wall, and the place was packed. And there were these, these guys there all linked arm in arm, and they were all doing kind of that Jewish stereotype thing that we've seen them do. They were doing this, and then they would move, and then they would do this. And I couldn't see. I mean, but there was women and children in the background. Everyone was clapping. And I asked my tour guide, I said, what's, what's going on here? He said, oh, Steve, I can't believe we're here for this. That synagogue, everybody there is a part of a synagogue, and they're, they're dedicating a new Torah scroll in their synagogue. And, and the Torah scroll for them is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they were singing, and they were clapping, and people were crying because they had 
the Word of God. When was the last time you and I were overwhelmed that we have the Word of God, the truth? How I wish every one of you could go on a mission trip. When I went to Russia and I met my tour guide there who gave me a tour of Moscow and we went to visit the Central Baptist Church that was in Moscow. My tour guide, oh yes, there's the picture. So there you go. Thank you, Steve. That's, this one, that's what, when, so when Paul says the church is to be a pillar and the buttress, of, think of that. This is what everybody in Ephesus would have looked at every day. Now you get that Jesus is saying, look, the church, the word of God, you're, you're, you're supposed to be the pillar of truth. You stand out. You, you look strong. You look mighty. It looks like you can believe in it. You can trust in it. You can go to it. Can you see what Paul is doing here? But this tour guide in Russia, when I, I met him and he took me to the church, he said, Steve, listen, I just want to tell you one thing. I know you're not going to make sense of this, but please don't put your Bible on the floor. If you sit down, don't lay your Bible on the floor next to you. It will really hurt and even offend the Christians you're going to meet. Because they, so many of them, don't even have a Bible. They share one as a family or they've just gotten one recently and they cherish it. They never would dare disrespect the Bible by putting it on the floor. And yet, we flick them in the back of our cars. We forget them at church. I brag about how many versions of it I have in my office. Are we understanding that we have the truth? A.W. Tozer puts it like this. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in the heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. In other words, Paul says, be tuned to this and you'll be unified. Be tuned to this. The church recognizes that God is the author of truth and that we believe and how we act on the basis of our beliefs has consequences. So let me say this. Listen to this. To believe and act according to the truth, according to God's word, brings glory to God. Amen? All right. To believe and act otherwise, listen to me now, is sin. Is sin. Now, I love getting to study. I'm not going to deny that. I love being able to, to read and prepare for these sermons because I get to discover so much from God's Word and so much of the history. But if I were to say this to you, again, since you're talking, I had some of you clap. By the way, you guys, you guys have rhythm, all right? The rest of you, I'll pray for you this afternoon, all right? That's all I got to say about that. But, all right, I just if I said to this to you, since you're talking to me already, God's Word is to be everything to us in the church. Can I get a witness? Da, 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 da. Ah. So someone comes up to you tomorrow and says, listen, man, God's word is everything to the church, right? What are you going to go? Amen. There you go. There you go, right? Now, the translators of the Geneva Bible, this is years ago, centuries ago, 
actually felt led to explain what they meant when they said that. Listen to what they said. The Bible is the light to our paths, the key of the kingdom of heaven, our comfort in affliction, our shield and sword against Satan, the school of all wisdom, the glass wherein we behold God's face, the testimony of his favor, and the only food and nourishment of our souls. Wouldn't you like to think like that now? We've lost the art of thinking deeply about God's word. But we're a family. We're the church of the living God. We have the truth. The Bible is our light. It's our key. It's our comfort. It's our shield and sword. It's our school. It's our mirror. It's our testimony and our food and our nourishment and our foundation and our pillar. It's everything. Amen? There you go. Now you're waking up, all right? All right? And so the church has a stewardship. We have a stewardship of the Bible. We have a duty to guard it. We have a duty to keep it precious. And churches that tamper with the Bible or misrepresent the Bible or depreciate the Bible or regulate the Bible to a secondary place or abandon biblical truth to destroy their own, for their, their own reasoning for existing, you know what they do? It leads to impotence and judgment. How does the church then display the truth of God? If we're a family, and this is the dwelling place of God, all right? It doesn't have to be complicated for, to be profound. All right, here you go. You can write this down. <clears throat> How do you want to be the pillar and foundation of the truth? First of all, believe God's word. We need to believe it. We need to believe it. Acts 24, 14. Paul says to, to Felix, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and what that is written in the prophets. That's Paul's way of saying, I believe my Bible, sir. I believe it. Do the people that you do life with know that you believe the Bible? Every part of it. I have an article that I'll maybe post. I can't remember if I posted it because I post so many. I know that some of you probably think I'm crazy. But it's called, this article is called, I Used to Be Embarrassed by the Bible. And this guy talks about how he just had to come to grips. Either I believe it or I don't. Secondly, here's one. We need to memorize it. We need to memorize it. David said in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Now listen, adults, college kids, all of us that you're struggling, listen to me. Memorizing God's word doesn't stop at junior high. When was the last time you and I memorized God's Word? Because if you memorize it, you can do the next thing. We need to meditate on it. David said in Psalm 1, and in his law does he meditate day and night. That's the righteous man, the righteous man who flourishes, and he's planted like a tree by the waters. Then we need to study it. We need to study it. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God. That, mean, that doesn't mean approved as in you got to earn God's approval. No, it means you are studying the God you love. You're showing this. Now, this one should be obvious. We need to obey it. If this is the pillar and foundation of the truth, the family of God, the church of the living God, we need to obey it. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. I love that old kid's song. I don't know if you guys still learn it, but I, I learned it. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. I know it's old and, you know, we could probably punch that up a little bit, but it's a good song. We need to defend it. 
We need to defend the Word of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says he was appointed for a defense of the gospel. And so after you believe it and read it and memorize it and study it and defend it and uh, obey it and all this, we need to live it. We need to live it. Paul said in Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. We need to live it. And when you do all that, church, God's blessed this church in the last year. We've got to figure out a way to grow, but I don't want to grow so we can brag about our building. I want to grow because people are getting to meet Jesus. And the only way that happens is we need to proclaim it. We need to proclaim the truth. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. We're in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Gustav Wingren said this, Christ's word remains first and last the gospel, which is not intended to improve the earth, but to open heaven. So we are a family. We are the church of the living God. As God's family, as the place where God dwells, we believe in and defend and uphold and declare the truth about God. Great. Is there a particular truth we're supposed to defend? I'm glad you asked. All right. Finally, verse 16. We confess the one true gospel. We confess the one true gospel. Now, I don't know what your thoughts are about creeds or hymns or even songs about Jesus in general. But what is the most important truth we are to know and protect and uphold? Well, everything we just talked about. Let me put it in four words. Well, actually five. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to uphold. So the question you need to ask and know is, what is the gospel? And you see it in verse 16. It's the, one of the first early church, either hymns or creeds of the church. And Paul says, basically, God became man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honored by angels and feared by demons. And he was proclaimed and he ascended into heaven. If you want the whole gospel laid out to you, Galatians chapter 4, in verse 4 to 7, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a son than an heir through God. Notice what he says in verse 16. Jesus was God in the flesh. Isn't it funny, the timing of the Holy Spirit? We're about to celebrate Christmas. This is God in the flesh. Now, can I ask you something about Christmas for us here at Calvary? Is Christmas more than just a nostalgic jaunt down memory lane? Amen. Or is it the anthem of our lives? Because the Bible says here in 1 Timothy 3.16 that he was God in, in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Do you remember when he was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17? The Holy Spirit ascended down on Jesus like a dove. He was seen by angels. Think about it at Christmas. Angels announced him to shepherds. 
angels praised him. Angels ministered to him not once but twice, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels witnessed to his resurrection. When they go to the grave and they find it empty, it's angels that they see him. If you read Revelation, angels serve God for eternity. He was proclaimed among the nations. This message of Jesus Christ has been preached all over the world, and many have believed and are and have been saved. That's the heart of the message. So Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. In the next chapter, he says, we do not preach or I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stanton Nofel says it like this. This confession is another way to say that Christians should have no creed but Christ. It is Christ who saves us and unites us. Anyone in Christ should recognize all others who are in Christ. I was sharing this with Steve when I was studying this past week. There was an old church in England, and a sign in the front of the building read this. This was their front sign. We preach Christ crucified. Man, great sign. But over the years, ivy grew up, and it obscured the last word. So now their motto said, we preach Christ. And then over the years, more ivy grew, and then the motto changed to, we preach. Until finally, more of it grew up, and there was no sign. And then the church died. Such is the fate of any church that fails to carry out its mission. We need to preach Christ crucified. Notice what it says in verse 16 again. He says, this was a common confession. That confession means to say the same thing. It means all of the Christians were unanimous. This mystery of godliness, this, this, when he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Remember that picture of the, of the uh, temple of Artemis, of Diana? Remember in Acts chapter 19, when they would gather, they would say, great is Artemis, great is Diana. But now Paul says, no, 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 great is the mystery of godliness, great is Jesus. We can't be embarrassed by our Savior. Paul declares this over and over again in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in according with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then verse 16 ends with, He was taken up in glory. Remember the church of the living God? In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, here's what the writer says. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, and as they, the disciples, were looking up, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, angels, by the way, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Listen, Calvary, Jesus is alive and is coming back. That's our message, that's our hope, that's our comfort, that's our power. This Jesus 
God in the flesh who was verified by the Holy Spirit, raised from the dead, praised by angels, proclaimed around the world, believed and followed as Savior and Lord is now, right now, crowned with glory and honor and majesty and power as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you're a Christian, He resides in you. Soak that in. You know what that means? If you're struggling, if you're having a difficult time, Jesus is your Savior and His Spirit's in you. If you're struggling with weakness, Christ is your strength. If you're hurting or battered, Christ is your healer. If you're confused or depressed or anxious, Christ is your peace. If you're overwhelmed, John says in 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Oh, Calvary, listen, man, we're family. We are the church of the living God. We have God's truth and we know the gospel. So here's my concluding question. For every one of you here today, do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you know Him as your Savior, as your Redeemer, as your Lord? Paul said in Acts 4, 12, that there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. When the Philippian jailer said, good sir, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16? He said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Romans 10, Paul says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Do you know Jesus? Only Jesus, only believing in God's word, his word. You can't be baptized to be saved. Listen to that. You can't be. All right? I know Newfoundland is a very religious province. Your baptism will not save you. A church cannot save you. It doesn't matter your label. It doesn't save you. Your good deeds can't save you. Your family can't save you. Your sincerity can't save you. Only Jesus and only believing in God's word can save you. Who he is, what he has done, what he has, sa- what he has said about you. And Christians here this morning, do you know and understand how amazing it is to be a part of the family of God? I'm liking you more, Mary. I'll keep you around. Now, there's a few things about being part of the family, right? I talked about it earlier. You don't get to pick and choose your family in the church. Whether you like it or not now, you're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you because of Jesus. We're family. We're simply a part of it. Paul says again in Ephesians, I therefore, Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do you do that? With all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now listen to this. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do we do all of this? How do you walk worthy? How do you apply the gospel? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and then this bond of peace. (laughs) It's old preacher Harry Ironside. He writes about this experience when he was taking a train from Minneapolis to California, and he was tired, and this guy helped him get set up, and he had his Bible, and his Bible was out, and he was reading it. While he was reading it, this German woman walked up to him and said, I see you're reading your Bible. And she said, may I join you? And then this Norwegian man did. And before they got to California, 28 people were gathered together reading God's word and praying and worshiping God. They finally get to California. And at the end of the trip, the German woman says, what denomination are you? 
Now, the whole thing could have fallen apart, but I love Ironside. He says, why, I'm of David's denomination. And he quoted Psalm 119.63, where David said, I am a companion of all them that fear God and keep his precepts. Is that true of you and I? Christian, we are the church of the living God. Do we believe that? Do we act like it? Is it on display for the city of St. John's to see? Christian, we have the truth. Are we living life in the strength and freedom and safety of that reality? Christian, do you know the gospel? Do you preach it to yourself every day? Do you rejoice in it every day? Do you apply it to every part of your life? If not, why not? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher and was a doctor to the king of England, he said, so when sin comes and tempts you, or when you are doubtful as to whether you can go on with Christian life or feel that the Christian life is hard and makes excessive demands, remember the price that was paid for your deliverance, your ransom. Christ gave his life unto death that we might be rescued and that we might become holy. I want you to remember that. So, practically speaking, if you live life in humility, then that means you renounce self-centeredness. It's not about you. If you live life in gentleness, that means you've got to renounce harshness and violence. It is no good, church, to be right at the top of your lungs. Remember the church at Ephesus. They were all about to stand and forgot the Savior. If you live life in patience, then that means we must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about us. It's about Christ. If you live life in love, then that means we must renounce our rights. And I love this. I don't know who said this, but one guy said, Be careful of standing on your rights for then God may stand on His. It affects the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act. It affects our priorities and our values, our relationships. And folks, listen, don't apologize. I I won't apologize for asking you to commit to something because Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't change the world with spectators. He brought... Through people, through, but through people who knew enough about him to be dangerous and were willing to do what they could with his name. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper put this quote by C.T. Studd, and I only found out about this because of the help of Steve Da. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are you going to do with your life? From the youngest of you here to the oldest. I found out about this quote, I found out that Sir Wilfred Grinfill, who we all know if you're from Newfoundland, his statue is across the street down by the Confederation Building. He got saved in Chicago, gave up his life, gave up his fortune to serve God along the coastline of Labrador. He got saved under the ministry of D.L. Moody. And it is said that when Grenfell finally got to meet Moody, he walks up to him and says, Sir, I want to thank you. It was under your ministry that I came to Christ 14 years ago. To which Moody replied, What have you done with Jesus since then? That was his response. And I said to Steve this week, I said, that's why these guys were great. Because, they, they, you know, most guys, if someone walked up to me and said, you know, 14 years ago, Steve, I got saved, I'd be tempted to go, well, thank you very much. But imagine having to go, what have you done with Jesus then if you found him? We're the family of God. We're the church of the living God. We have all of the truths of God. Only one life, and it'll be over. Only what's done for Christ will last. And grace is not earned. Let's close in prayer and sing this song before we go. Father God, I thank you and I praise you. Lord, I thank you for a sense of freedom. I, I, I was so excited by this passage. 
I know this room is small and it's filled and it's hot. And, but Lord, I just hope and pray that we as a church will understand that God, we belong to you. We are family. That you dwell in us and among us. And that Father, you have given us the gospel and we will not be ashamed of it. And so, Lord, I pray if there's somebody here this morning and they don't know you, that they won't leave until they do. I pray for Christians that we'll get serious about you. And that doesn't mean legalism. I don't want people burdened with the tyranny of rules. But, Father, set free with the wonder of love. Oh, but, Father, God, help us to realize that real love casts out of fear and real love changes and transforms. So give us courage as we close in song, Father God to be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Increase my faith and our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.